Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. How should we remember Cleopatra? A pretty young temptress rolling out of a carpet? A mighty queen sailing majestically down the Nile? An imperious pharaoh with the power of life and death? Or simply a girl born into a dangerous world who managed to survive for almost four decades until her luck finally ran out? There's an element of truth in all of them. More than 2,000 years after she was born, she remains the most famous woman in history, a fighter a survivor, a leader, a legend. For centuries to come, people will remember her story. And that, you might say, was her greatest victory. That is the ending of a top new book on Cleopatra, Queen of the Nile, by a very distinguished historian, (laughs) Dominic Sambrook. Dominic, this is the latest in your series of books written for younger readers. It is indeed. Yes, the latest adventure in time. So Cleopatra was an obvious one to pick for kind of eight to 12 year olds um, because they, like the rest of us, um, are suckers for, I mean, suckers is the wrong word. They, like the rest of us, are enthusiasts for glamour, intrigue, battles, gold, sieges, gold, glitter, sphinxes, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, doom, love affairs, all the things that we associate with ancient Egypt, with ancient Rome, and particularly with the character of Cleopatra. So people who've listened to this um, podcast on a regular basis may remember that we also did an episode on Alexander the Great. Uh, and Dominic, yeah. the reason that we did an episode on Alexander the Great is because um, your previous book in this series was on Alexander. Yeah. Um, and in in <laughs> the end of that book, you offered up Alexander the Great as a model for for young children everywhere. Uh, And we've got a question here from um, Judith Downey, who says, I bought Dominic's book on Cleopatra for my granddaughters. Before I give it to them, can you tell me, is Cleopatra a role model for girls? I think she absolutely is a role model for girls, Tom. I don't think role models for girls need to be drippy. And I think Cleopatra is the most famous example in history of a powerful woman. So there aren't that many historical examples of very, very powerful internationally famous women. I suppose Catherine the Great is an obvious one. Um, Elizabeth I in England. But Cleopatra dwarfs both of those. I completely agree. She is the last fair, last ruling pharaoh of Egypt. She is an, a, 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 a prime actor in one of the greatest political dramas in all history, the last days of the Roman Republic, the, the, the rise of Rome to greatness, the death of Egypt as a sort of independent civilization. Um, but also she's a remarkable woman because she's in a world dominated by men and she holds her own. She actually increases her, her dominions, doesn't she? Yes. And that's the thing. She doesn't just hold her own. I mean, there is a point at which it looks as though not only is she going to restore the empire that her forefathers ruled, but she's going to create something even greater. I mean, she yeah. is, I think, an absolutely extraordinary figure 
And part of the fascination, of course, is that she's not only an extraordinary political figure, but she also has this aura of romance and and glamour and myth about her, which is a, a huge part of her kind of public image today, but was generated by herself and yeah. by her enemies. And it's the and, kind of fusion of those two traditions that that makes the whole story so fascinating. Well, that's what... So most of our listeners, if you don't know the story of Cleopatra terribly well, um, you will probably at least vaguely know that she's involved with Julius Caesar, she's involved with Mark Antony, and she has this sort of tragic death. And you'll, all, and you'll know all that from innumerable plays, operas, musicals, video games. You know, she crops up everywhere from the Elizabeth Taylor film to kind of Assassin's Creed, the video game. Asterix, carry on film. Absolutely. Carry on films. Exactly. I mean, there's no other historical, I don't think there's any other female historical character who has been represented in so many different media and who also carries that, that sort of whiff of, of danger, of, of sexual danger. Uh, as Cleopatra, and as we'll discover, Tom, whether that is merited, whether that's merited or yes. not, is kind of very interesting because this is a kind of classic example of the way in which the the myth, the legend itself, is dazzling and remarkable, and has generated, you know, great, great poetry. So there's the the famous lines in Antony Cleopatra by Shakespeare, where he he portrays this story, and he has Cleopatra kind of stressing about what will happen after she and Antony have died. And she says, Antony shall be brought drunken forth, and I shall see some squeaking Cleopatra boy my greatness in the posture of a whore. So she's imagining that, you know, a boy will appear on the stage and, and pretend to be her. Yeah. Um, and in a way, that's, you know, <laughs> that's part of the kind of the, the extraordinary power of this is that Cleopatra as a historical figure was playing a role. As we will, as we will discuss, and it's precisely that kind of self-dramatization that has made her such a potent figure for Shakespeare, for Elizabeth Taylor, for for everyone who's you know, yeah. such an extraordinary kind of interplay and interaction. But Tom, um, I know you're you're incredibly keen to talk about the the sort of to do a lot of debunking and to talk about the sort of sources and stuff. So so before we really kick off the narrative, which we intend to go through, you know, in real detail, as we have done in the past with Alexander and with the Falklands and things like that, it's worth saying, isn't it? I mean, you alluded to the fact that she self-mythologizes, but also there's a mythology created by her enemies. And mm-hmm. the extraordinary thing about Cleopatra, of all these characters in history, you know, she's one of the top four or five most famous characters in all history. But Almost every single thing we know about her comes from her enemies. That's right, isn't it? I mean, there's no, a handful I, of no, there I, are a handful of inscriptions. There are there are temple carvings, but coins. the written there are coins, but the written descriptions come from Roman sources that are actually describing her effect on on the Romans. That's right, isn't it? There's nothing written down by Egyptian. There's no narrative by Egyptians. No, no. I think I think the. There is Josephus, who is a, a Jewish writer, writing um, about a hundred years after her, after she lived. Who, but th- then the Jews are very hostile to her as well. Um, but, but having said that, I mean, it is absolutely possible to see the kind of um, the mythology that she was spinning. So I yeah. think you do, and and I think that that part of the fascination of her character is precisely that um, actually those two traditions kind of meld and merge in in a very kind of effective way, kind of gin and tonic effect. Right, that they're 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 more fascinating for complementing each other. If you see what I mean, yeah, no, I do. I, I absolutely see that. I think we should um, we should start by putting her in the context of the age that she's born, yeah. and, and and we 
we mentioned Alexander the Great. So you begin your book with Cleopatra as a young girl in the tomb of Alexander, right? Because the, the, you've, you've said that she's an Egyptian pharaoh, but the complicating factor is that she's not herself kind of an Egyptian. She's not bred of the mud of the Nile. She's not, you know, exactly. not like the, the native pharaohs. She is the descendant of one of Alexander the Great's generals. Yeah, that's right. So um, there's always an element of any biography of Cleopatra. There's always an element of, of fiction or of speculation because we know so little about her early life. And when I was kicking off my own kids' book, I thought, you know, there's, there's the challenge of doing these massive kind of info dumps. And one way of doing of dramatizing it is imagining something that we, she would undoubtedly have done. We know that the, the Ptolemies did this. They the festival of they had festivals around Alexander's tomb because Alexander's tomb was in Alexandria. So it's it's not a flight of fantasy to imagine her there. So why does that matter? Because in the 4th century, as we discussed it, the 4th century BC, as we discussed in our Alexander podcasts, Alexander had had led these armies out of Macedonia and conquered so much of what used to be called the Near East, including Egypt. And at his death, the empire had been divided up among his kind of captains. And the shrewdest and, and basically the cleverest of them, um, Ptolemy, his old friend who'd been educated at the feet of Aristotle alongside Alexander, he goes off to Egypt. He says he wants Egypt because it's the richest, but it's the easiest to defend because it's kind of at the end of the line, if you know what I mean. So yeah. it's easy to, you know, it's, it's wealthy. You've got the wealth of the Nile, but you can ease, as long as you, if you can hold the line at the Delta, you can stop anybody breaking in. And Ptolemy goes, uh, he rules as Pharaoh. So as Alexander had done, he sort of assimilates to Egyptian traditions, doesn't and he? And he takes a key Yes. A key legitimizing item, which is the coffin of Alexander the Great, doesn't he? I mean, he literally transports it from Babylon, where Alexander has died, and takes it all the way to Egypt. That's right. Which is, you know, the imprimatur of his own. It's it's the Greek imprimatur of of what will become his Egyptian pharaonic status. So what happens, what's so interesting, right at the beginning, is you have this melding of Egyptian and, and Macedonian Greek traditions. So they wear the double crown of upper and lower Egypt. They are depicted, these sort of Macedonian adventurers are depicted as Egyptian pharaohs, but they have a brand new capital built on the shores of the Mediterranean and the site supposedly chosen by Alexander himself, Alexandria. And at the very heart of Alexandria, as you say, is the tomb of Alexander, is Alexander. And and the interesting thing is they are, they depict themselves as Egyptians. They, they, they are very respectful to the to the priests, but it's really important to them that they are still Macedonian Greeks. And the, and the sign of that is the fact that they only marry, you know, they marry one another. So this is the really remarkable thing, isn't it? So Ptolemy dies in, I think, 282 or 284 or something. And his son, also Ptolemy, takes over. And he's called Ptolemy Philadelphus, which means the sibling loving, the sibling lover. And, and he's called that because he marries his own sister. Arsinoe. And that then starts the trend, the, the thing that Ptolemies are most famous for. So it's like this sort of clan of warriors have established themselves, but they're sticking to their own, even though they are, they're very careful at turning yeah. up at Egyptian temple ceremonies and all that sort of stuff, but they're still very, very Greek, aren't but they? But they could, they could point out that Hera and Zeus, so the, the queen and the, the king of the Greek gods married one another, and they're very good at finding greek parallels for for egyptian elements and so they even construct a god serapis who is 
kind of combination of of Heracles and Osiris and all these kind of various Greek and Egyptian gods, and they they invent him, and he becomes essentially the presiding deity of Alexandria. But I think it is important to emphasize that the predominant tone of the Greek inhabitants of Alexandria, and I think of the Ptolemies themselves, by and large, right the way up into to Cleopatra, and this is why Cleopatra is is such a key figure. Most of the Ptolemies are pretty contemptuous of Egypt yeah. and Egyptian culture, and they regard the wealth of Egypt as something to be leached. So the Egyptians themselves, I think, view Alexandria as a, as a foreign city, like an enormous kind of great tick that has attached itself to the body of Egypt and is just leeching all the blood out of it. And well, 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 Tom, I mentioned um, Assassin's Creed as one of the depictions of Cleopatra. Now, I know you're not a video games person, but anybody who has played video games or has played that particular video game, Assassin's Creed Origins, will know that it creates this colossal and incredibly detailed portrait of Ptolemaic Egypt. And it's all very Egyptian pyramids and kind of huts and the Nile and all that sort of stuff. And in the game, which has been done with sort of intense cooperation with kind of historians and archaeologists, you get to Alexandria and it's marble colonnades and it's mm. people and the, and the other characters are talking in greek rather than in egyptian and it's sort of scholars strolling in gardens yeah. and and it feels very very greek as indeed alexandria must i mean it was cosmopolitan but it saw itself didn't it as part of the greek world well i mean it's literally cosmopolis it's the the, the city of the universe and it's ambition it's it's the ambition of alexandria is to contain within its streets everything. So it's great yeah. harbours to contain ships that have come from across the world, from, from not just from the Mediterranean, but from India and Africa. Uh, and of course, its famous library. Again, the ambition is to contain all the learning that there is. But this ambition is a Greek ambition, and the city is a Greek city, and the rulers are Greek. And the relationship with Egypt is always, therefore, incredibly paradoxical. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's a proper kind of, it, it is a colonial relationship right the way up to the time of Cleopatra. And one of the things that makes Cleopatra so distinctive is that she moves beyond that. So Cleopatra is born, we think, at the beginning of 69 BC or the or late 70 BC, probably January 69 BC. And she's born, isn't she, Tom, into a world in which that empire, the Ptolemaic empire, is a shadow of its... Yeah. It, uh, so so what what's happened, would you say, to... What's gone wrong? So we talked about Alexander and uh, as one bookend of a, a distinctive period that historians call the Hellenistic era, and Cleopatra is the other. Uh, and the Hellenistic period basically describes the successor empires, the successor states of Alexander. And to begin with, they're incredibly potent. Um, and Ptolemaic Egypt is one of basically three successor states. However, what happens over the course of um, the second and first centuries BC is that a new superpower is rising in the West and there has never been a superpower like it in the Mediterranean. And by the time that Cleopatra is born, essentially the whole of the Mediterranean has come under the, under the, um, the, the influence, the authority of this uh, emergent superpower. And that superpower of course is Rome, which is a Republic. And the Republic is founded on a contempt for Kings which means that the very structure of government in Alexandria, the entire essence of monarchy, the Pharaonic traditions, the Macedonian traditions, are viewed by Roman Republican leaders with the utmost contempt. 
Yeah. And the, the Egyptians have started to lose territory, haven't they? So they've, they had expanded beyond their borders. They'd held kind of Cyprus and Cyrene, which is now Libya and parts of Syria. But that's all being whittled away by the Romans, isn't it? And the Alexandrian crowd who are always, so Alexandria is both a city of philosophy and great learning, but it's also got this terrible tradition of rioting. Well, it's officially a democracy. I mean, that's yeah. that's another kind of fascinating aspect of it, is that it's a monarchy, but it's also a democracy. And so the, the people of Alexandria... They're always throwing out yeah. Ptolemies and replacing them with their brothers. And, uh, and the, There's a tradition that the women of Alexandria in riots will go and grab people's testicles, men's oh, testicles. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's, so always, that's, a, that's a distinctive feature of Alexandria. I didn't put that in the riots. children's book. No, I hope not. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, Cleopatra, so let's talk a tiny bit about Cleopatra's parents. So we know who her father was. He is Ptolemy the Twelfth, who's nicknamed Auletes, the flute player, and some, player some, and some people always say. say that's very. Well, there are two different schools of thought on this, as far as I can tell. One is that this is because he's he's dissipated and he spends all his time at parties, which seems like a very Roman way of descri- orientalizing way of describing Ptolemy. And the other is that he's called this because he enjoyed the religion of Dionysus, um, and that you know playing the the flute or the clarinet and sort of dancing and all that sort of stuff was part of the religious um, sort of tradition. What's, what's your take on, on Cleopatra's father? Well, um, he, he, he has a very bad hand and he has a bad hand because over the course of his reign, the last the other great rival um, traditional rival of Egypt, Ptolemaic Egypt, Syria, the Seleucid empire has, it gets extinguished by Pompey the great, who is um, Rome's greatest general. Um, in the in the um, the sixties and fifties BC, and he extinguishes Seleucid independence. He captures Jerusalem. He goes back to Rome, kind of trailing kings and wealth and glory. But he doesn't take over Egypt. Egypt is left, but it's it's absolutely under sufferance. And one of the reasons why Egypt is not taken over is that it's too rich. So not even the Pompey's rivals will not permit him to annex Egypt, but nor will anyone else be allowed to do it because yeah. it's simply too rich. And so that's a very humiliating position for Ptolemy Alites to be in because basically he, he's on the throne precisely because he is seen as so weak. Yeah. And the nickname, I think, I mean, I think it has a kind of du- double resonance. It, it, it symbolizes for the Romans the fact that Ptolemaic Egypt is, is contemptible, decadent. It's all about... You know, they're not interested in manly things like conquering Gaul or stuff like that. They're just interested in parties. But also it's sinister because there are are, are religious traditions. These are, you know, Egypt is a land where the gods have animal heads and all kinds of ancient, dark, sinister practices. None of it that is really conducive with the stern, uh, ancestral, republican traditions of Rome. Yeah. Um, I I mean, there's a a slight, you know, it's anachronistic. But the way in which, say, America, you know, Republican Americans would look at the monarchies of Europe in the 19th yeah. century, something of that quality, yeah. I think, is there. That makes complete sense. But then there's the issue of her mother. So his wife, Ptolemy's wife, was called Cleopatra Tryphena, who, and she was, it's often thought to have been, we're not exactly sure, but she's probably some kind of relative, some part of the clan, um, but not, not his sister. But there is some doubt or, or doubt is sometimes expressed about Cleopatra's own ethnicity. Because, for example, when Gal Gadot, the Israeli actress, said that she wanted to remake Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra and she wanted to play Cleopatra, there was torrent outpouring of, out, of outrage. 
um, people saying Cleopatra was black. How can you, how can you do this? Mm. She was Egyptian. But I mean, I think most scholars would say that's absolute tosh, would they, Tom? That she's Cleopatra Macedonian. Was, she's I mean, undoubtedly she's Macedonian. Macedonian. Yeah. Yeah. If, I Good. mean, if she wasn't, it would have been mentioned. Well, the, the key thing, I think, and a lot of scholars say this is if it, if, although it's not explicitly stated in the sources that her mother was Ptolemy's wife so it's it's possible that she could have some other mother egyptian mother the romans would almost certainly have made use of it wouldn't they they'd have said well, she so was a- also would her siblings because yeah. the the <laughs> the the salient thing about the ptolemies is that they're a horrific family i mean they, they are terrifying and the female of the species tends to be deadlier than the male so the girls are just as likely to stab in the back and kill if not more so than the, the, the than the boys. Can I tell and you my favourite um, Ptolemy Ptolemy family f- family relationship? It's um, Ptolemy the Eighth, whose name was Physcon, which oh, I think fatty, yeah, fatty, obese, obese. So boy. so he married his sister Cleopatra the Second, who had previously been married to their brother, and had had a child by him, but then he tired of his own sister, so he married her daughter who was also his niece. So now was at once his niece, his daughter-in-law, and his second wife all at so once. And his, is- and his wife, wait for it, Tom, his wife got was cross and said, how dare you marry my daughter? You know, you're married to me, my brother. <laughs> and so in, he was infuriated by his wife nagging him. So do you know what he did? He, um, he killed their 14-year-old son, chopped him up, and gave him to his wife as a birthday present. Yeah, well... So, so they, people periodically have tried to make films about or TV series about the Ptolemies, and it's so confusing that it, it never quite works. But that kind of mafia ambience is, yeah. is absolutely key to un- that these are murderous, terrifying people. But they're also seen by the light of, of the Romans contemptible. So the other famous story that's told about that Ptolemy is that Scipio Aemilianus, who is the, the great war hero, who has captured Carthage and is the absolute epitome of Roman militarism, turns up in Alexandria and he walks at a brisk pace through the streets. And poor old Ptolemy is enormously fat and dressed in silk. And he kind of every wobble and undulation as he, <laughs> he, he, he totters and pants after Scipio is on display to the, uh, the, the people of Alexandria. And it's a, it's a kind of deliberate attempt by the Romans to, to, to kind of humiliate them. I think that we should take a break at this point okay. and that when we come back, we should, we should look more closely at the, the, the geopolitics of the world that Cleopatra is born into and the kind of the context that explains why, why, why her career is, is such a kind of triumph against the odds. Jolly good. We'll see you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Tom, it has been a little while, sadly, since we talked about our much-loved and learned sponsors at Unheard, the online magazine. Would that be U-N-H-E-R-D? That's precisely the spelling. Now, as you will know, Tom, um, or I hope you haven't forgotten, it's an online magazine that kicks back against herd mentality. Now, we're in the middle of talking about Cleopatra. Unheard's Kat Rosenfield has been looking into the, the cult, the fading cult, perhaps, of the girl boss, something I know you care a lot about, Tom. Uh, and it's perhaps best exemplified by Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the fraudulent multi-billion dollar health startup Theranos. That's some, this is a subject I know a lot about. Theranos sounds very sinister. It is sinister. Well, Theranos is basically a Bond villains organization, isn't it? Theranos. You'd immediately think that's evil. I do think it's evil. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I don't want to be sued by Theranos. I'm sure they're lovely. <laughs> uh, but they do sound evil. Well, should I tell you what Cat writes? Yes. Would you enjoy that? Yeah. Cat writes... The myth of Theranos might have shattered, but the legend of its founder lingers on. And as long as society remains enthralled to the narrative of the disruptor, the glass ceiling breaker, the patriarchy smasher, she won't be the only one. If Elizabeth Holmes hadn't existed, we would have had to invent her. And in some ways, we did. Yeah. Do you have thoughts on that, Tom? Well, in light of you know what we're saying about Cleopatra, yeah. that's, that's not without a certain relevance, is it? It's incredibly um, relevant. Yeah. Uh, and the sense in which Cleopatra was a, a, a genuine, you know, she genuinely broke through all kinds of glass ceilings. She did. But is also the invention of uh, those who were terrified of her. The important thing is to say that if you want to kick back against herd mentality. Which I do. I very much do. You can join Unheard today and get three months free, Dominic. Three months That's free. not even a bargain. It's a freebie. It absolutely is. They're giving it away. So just go to unheard.com. That's U-N-H-E-R-D forward slash rest r-e-s-t to claim this offer now right back to cleopatra welcome back to the rest is history uh tom you were very excitedly going to talk about um geopolitical context 
for the world in which so Cleopatra, we've 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 been talking for more than twenty minutes, and she's only just been born. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, because I think the context is is really fascinating, which is that essentially, so we we've talked about say British imperial power, and we've talked about countries like Argentina being. As, you know, or Egypt, say actually, yeah. being part uh, of an unofficial empire in which Britain's military, financial, naval power was such that they didn't have to come. You know, they didn't have to be administered by a British plenipotentiary, but they were they essentially couldn't do anything that the British didn't want them to do. And that's a very analogous situation to um, Egypt's relationship to Rome in the in the first century. The problem that the Hellenistic, the Greek world around the Near East had faced throughout the first century is that the Romans were were, un- were unwilling to tolerate anyone who might kind of conceivably rival them. So every time some king stood up and tried to, you know, impose a degree of order or to um, display a degree of autonomy, the legions would come topple him, hamstrung his elephants, yeah. drag his treasure off to be spent in Rome, all that kind of stuff. Um, but the Romans didn't want the hassle of actually administering this stuff. They didn't want to send in, you know, it would cost too much in terms of of, of money and men to, to, to bother with all that. Yeah. So essentially the Near East becomes a breeding ground for anarchy, which is part of why these Hellenistic kingdoms end up just collapsing. And e- Egypt really is, as the last ki- kingdom left standing, it's in a really, really difficult position because it is massively under Rome's military and financial thumb, but it doesn't even have the benefit of of knowing where it stands with Rome because it's constantly subject to the ambitions of all these kind of various rival warlords and bankers. Well, this is the thing. So Auletes, who we talked about, Cleopatra's father, I mean, he's best known in Rome um, because basically his his way of dealing with all this is to try and play off all the different Roman power brokers by bribing them, isn't it? So you've got Pompey the Great, um, he's, who models himself in Alexander the Great. So he's all these people. It's so interesting, isn't it? Um, we, we were talking about this as a kind of sequel to our Alexander podcast. And, and it makes sense to see it that way because all the characters think they're in a sequel to the Alexander podcast. Yeah, don't they? they are. I yeah. mean, Pompey does his hair like Alexander. He yeah. claims yeah. he's got Alexander's cloak and all he's of this. standing sort of, in profile. <laughs> yes, exactly. He's going to show off his quiff. Um, and as we'll see, you know, one of Mark Antony's one of the part of his great downfall is he launches this invasion, which is an attempt to kind of reproduce the glory of yeah. of Alexander in attacking the Persians. So, so Auletes, um, he sends Pompey a golden crown. He sends Julius Caesar six thousand silver talents. So he's basically throwing money around. And, and the problem is that that money, I mean, most of it is is, is raised from you know, the long-suffering Egyptian peasantry who've just, you know, just get, Egypt is is the breadbasket of the Mediterranean. So therefore there's enormous amounts of money there, but they just keep screwing more and more money out of the the long-suffering peasantry. But also he borrows a substantial chunk. So this banker called Rabirius, and this this is exact a problem for Ptolemy in exactly the way that say, you know, a, a third world country that gets into debt to the IMF or something. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a huge problem because, but it, of course, it then also becomes a problem for the Romans because they need their money back. Well, they need their money, but also it infuriates the Alexandrian crowd because they're very proud, aren't they? They yeah. hate the Romans. They're inflamed by the fact that their you know their own country has got, as they see it, crippling taxes to bribe Roman power brokers, and they, 
you know, Auletius has got this impossible balancing act. He can't alienate the Romans because otherwise they'll invade, kick him out and replace him with somebody else. But equally, he can't yeah. suck up to them too much because his own people will rise up against him. What's- and that's what happens in, I think, 58 BC when Cleopatra is probably about 10. And, there, and there Ptolemy are, has literally gone to Italy. Yeah, there are huge riots, um, aren't there? And he's he basically ends up toppled. He ends up, doesn't he go to, um, has this terrible meeting with Marcus Cato, Tom, when Cato is on the toilet? <laughs> so, yeah, so, so Cato's been set, Cato is the model of integrity and, and upright behaviour. Uh, and as a traditional representative of the Roman Republic is utterly contemptuous of kind of fat, effete Egyptian kings. Um, and yes, insists on conducting all his business with him on the uh, on the on toilet. Loo. So, but, so Aletius has been kicked out um, by his own people, and they replace him with Cleopatra, and by his own daughter. Yeah, both Cleopatra's older sister Berenike. Um, so they're all they all have the same. What's slightly annoying is that all the people in the Ptolemaic dynasty they only have one of about five names, don't they? Ptolemy, yeah. Arsinoe, <laughs> Berenike, yeah. Cleopatra. There must be some other male name, but I don't know. They're just all called Ptolemy. Um, so she takes over, uh, and f- I mean, she she rules for what three years? Well, while while, to- while, while, to- while her father is in Italy trying to raise the money and the men, so he's got all this cash that he's kind of extorted from the peasantry, borrowed from Rabirius the banker, and he's raising the money to come back and and, and take Egypt back. Berenike, meanwhile, has has married. Um, a, a, a guy called Seleucus. He's a brilliant man. Do you know what, you, if you've got his nickname, Tan. Saltfish Hawker. Yeah, the Saltfish <laughs> Munger, right? in the translation I have, because he stank of fish. The, uh, <laughs> yeah. The, well, the Alexandrians are all, not only are they very sort of decadent and stuff, but they're, they're very snobbish, aren't they? Uh, so yes, they're basically theoretical. Yeah. They have, they're very, um, they have a distinctly unprogressive attitude towards foreigners. Yeah. Um, and, and, and physical deformity. But he's murdered. Berenike takes. Berenike effect. gets fed up with him. Yeah. gets rid of him. Takes another husband. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, Rabirius, meanwhile, the banker whom Ptolemy's borrowed the money from, he he essentially, you know, he he knows that he's not going to get his money back unless Ptolemy's expedition expedition works. So he funds an expedition that is led by a guy called um, Aulus Gabinius, and they go, you know, they go to they go to Egypt. They um, they kick Berenike out. Um, She's executed, isn't she? She's right. executed. Uh, Ptolemy takes over again. And, of course, the guy who leads the cavalry on that expedition is a young up-and-coming Roman officer called Mark Antony. Yes. Do we, have a, a, do we have a section do you want to, do you want from, to, a, from, a, from a brilliant new book? John's a nice reading. Yeah. Gazing out from her window beside her servant girls, Cleopatra could not take her eyes off them. One Roman in particular caught her attention, a square-jawed, shaggy-haired, rugged-looking man who carried himself with the arrogance of a born leader. One of her servants whispered that this was the young cavalry commander all the girls were talking about. Some called him the new Heracles, but his real name was Mark Antony. Now, as the handsome young commander swung down from his horse and removed his helmet, he glanced casually up at the window. For a moment, his dark eyes met Cleopatra's, (laughs) and he grinned. And suddenly, Tom Holland, it was as though time had slowed to a halt and Cleopatra <laughs> felt a kind of tremor run through her body, a thrill of fear and danger and overwhelming excitement all mixed up together. Goodness. Isn't that exciting? Is that not exciting? Well, that really is. That is uh, a book for all nine-year-olds to read. Is uh, Yes. Well, very, very exciting. Um, 
Yes. So the likelihood is is that um, Cleopatra may have seen Antony. Well, she um, must have seen him. I mean, it, 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 he's so senior because he's the cavalry commander who has led the charge. Yeah. And as her father is installed back in the palace. Yeah. Um, so the palace, by the way, we should talk about just one quick word about that. So when we think about the palace, you're probably thinking Buckingham Palace or or some sort of stereotypical palace, but it's not. It's a huge quarter of the city, isn't it? Mm. So there are temples that will become important later on when Julius Caesar enters the story because the battle for the palace becomes very important. So Mark Antony has come in with Aulus Gabinius's men who are called the Gabinians and they become quite a they become players in their own right in this incredibly complicated story and Cleopatra's father is back in charge and clearly she is very much in favor with him because she is not punished as her sister was so the assumption must be not least because she's now going to be his heir that she in some way has still been loyal to him and in fact she when she takes her pharaonic title she always describes herself as the father loving goddess or the father loving queen yeah so so she's kind of on his side so so ptolemy ptolemy Elites is back uh, but he now faces the, the problem of paying off rabirius yes lent, the banker who's lent him all this money um so he he comes up with a cunning wheeze which is to <laughs> appoint rabirius the finance minister yeah and rabirius obviously <laughs> settles in and starts screwing ever more money out. Uh, so to they, use your analogy, you know, Tom, it's like, um, you know, the British, some, the, the head of, you know, the Bank of England or something had gone to run the Argentine economy yeah. or in 1890. Like, um, the, the episode we did on um, Maximilian, Emperor Maximilian. Yes. Being sent by Napoleon III to, to get the money that the French had lent. Um, yeah. yeah, I think kind of very analogous. And as in those situations, obviously the, the locals don't like this. And so after a year, um, Rabirius gets kicked out, runs back to Rome, and Gabinius, who his, you know, he's he's played this key role in um in, in Egypt. And so obviously everyone back in Rome is now furious with him, incredibly jealous. And what happens in Rome when people are jealous of one another is that they bring law cases. And Gabinius gets convicted of taking bribes from Olites. He's obviously massively guilty of that. Mm. Um and so the whole thing slightly gets parked. Uh, Ptolemy is back in Egypt. He dies in 51. And meanwhile, in Rome, everything is starting to go tits up because this is 51 is two years before Julius Caesar crosses the Rubicon. And the whole Roman Republic is going to implode into civil war. And on rival sides in the civil war, we have Julius Caesar and his erstwhile friend, in fact, um, his erstwhile son-in-law, Pompey the Great. Yeah, and while that matters for Cleopatra is that she she's Aulites's heir, isn't she? Yes. And with a civil together, war in, together with her her younger brother, a civil war in the Roman world, Egypt is so rich and strategically important that it can't really. It's it's very very difficult to stay out. You have to yeah. pick a side, but by picking a side, it's a bit like being the Liberal Democrats. Um, <laughs> by picking a side, you kind of you 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 know you pin yourself to a position. And if things go badly, you know, you've got no defense. Yeah. You know, that's the end of you, basically. Yeah. So, so, so it's, it's, it's tricky and treacherous. And Ptolemy has left Egypt to, to Cleopatra, who's about 17, I think, at this point. Yeah. And Cleopatra's younger brother, who comes to the throne and is hailed as Ptolemy the 13th. And he's about, what, 12, 13? Yeah. And probably not even that time. I think it's about 11 
or so. I mean, these it, dates are all very vague. We, it's impossible to be sure. Something to say at this point is that Cleopatra never rules without a male colleague. So right the way through, she always has a, a, a male counterpart. Egypt had had female pharaohs before, hadn't it? Hatshepsut. I know you're much more um, up yeah, on ancient Egypt. Yeah. So she's 18th dynasty. So there are role models and obviously, I don't think, uh, that, I don't think wouldn't you don't think they would have looked back they that far? Have, no, they What about the popularity, Tom, of Isis? Because obviously Isis is a colossal figure in the Egyptian pantheon and one that Cleopatra embraces. She dresses as Isis. Well, you know, is that yeah. not an image of kind so, of female monarchy? So Cleopatra comes to power. She's 17. She has this this young boy who is under the thumb of, of, of all kinds of significant players in, in her father's court. And they are, are clearly assuming that both of these um, these young pharaohs will be ciphers, mm. uh, and and insofar as one of them will, will succeed to power, it will be the it, it'll be Ptolemy. But Cleopatra has other ideas, and this is why she's such a remarkable figure. Because even though even she can't get away with just ruling on her own as a woman, she is someone who is absolutely determined to rule as a pharaoh. So she she puts her name first. You know, she, her yeah. name is ahead of Ptolemy's. She puts her name uh, on on coins. She puts her portrait on coins without Ptolemy, and she realizes that there is scope for her in playing not just uh, the role of of a Ptolemaic ruler, but a properly Egyptian pharaoh, because there is all this enormous kind of you know thousands and thousands of years of tradition and myth and heritage that she can draw on and that as a woman as you say the great goddess isis pop you know an object of 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 veneration across egypt and far beyond egypt that if she can invoke that that sense that sense of herself as the mother goddess of egypt then that will get her popular support across the country yeah. as well as Alexandria. And essentially, even though she, you know, she's a very, very young girl, the leader of a, a country that is absolutely on its uppers in debt to Rome in the shadow of this, this great military superpower, she dares to think that she can essentially revive the, the fortunes of her kingdom and rule as Alexander had. And it's the most astonishing story. And that's what makes her such a remarkable figure. Um, and, you know, she, she, she profits from the much broader story that is going on of, of the Roman civil war and what will become the implosion of the Republic. And I think that we should, we should take a break at this point. And when we come back, we should look at what happens when Julius Caesar meets with Pompey and then how Cleopatra comes to meet with Julius Caesar. So for most of you, we will see you for the next installment of this thrilling historical saga, which will undoubtedly feature more readings from moving and powerful new histories <laughs> of Cleopatra. So we will see you tomorrow for most of you. But some of you, of course, will have early access to all the episodes because you're members of the Rest is History Club. And in true Hellenistic style, we never miss a commercial opportunity. So if you want to join the Rest is History Club and listen to all the episodes right now, just go to restishistorypod.com and sign up. And if you don't, we will see you tomorrow. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Listener.